0: You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 48. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. welcome to the thursday edition guys thank you so much for sharing with me today and i'm going to in the hopes not to sound like a broken record i'm going to ask again for anyone who is loving the show and has not left a review on itunes please go leave one on itunes it only takes about 30 seconds to leave it and it means so much to me and helps other guests who might come on the show see how much you guys really are enjoying this podcast Before we get into today's episode, I also just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for sharing this with your friends and your family members and linking to it on your blog. It really does mean a lot, and it's so incredible to see the show continue to grow and develop. I've been working on some fun holiday-themed editions to come out in the next weeks to come, so I'm so excited to share those and just continue to take this to the next level for you guys into 2015 as well. In today's episode, we're talking with Brooke White, who you may know in a few different ways. You may know her as a singer in the band Jack and White. You might know her online as one half of the duo of the Girls With Glasses show, or you may even remember her from season seven of American Idol. In this show, we're gonna be talking with Brooke about her internal journey to understand her talents, embrace them, and find her worth outside of them. Her own journey, as you'll hear, reflects this incredible encouragement throughout external sources and also discouragement. She has had a really fascinating ride with her singing ability, and we're gonna look at how that has manifested for her and what she's learned along the way. This is an amazing episode because anyone that has any type of creativity or gift that they're working on, whether it's a blog post you're writing, whether you're an artist yourself or a musician, this episode is really going to tap into our natural talents and how we can push them away. We can embrace them too closely and how external sources are going to tell us over and over again that we're very good or that we're not good at all. So this is incredible, guys. I can't wait. And get at least, at least skip to the second half of the show and hear this whole story of how this American Idol story plays out. The stories she has to share are incredible. And the last question that I ask every guest, the what will you tell someone who's just starting out on this journey? That question, Brooke has nailed better than I could ever imagine any guest could possibly answer it. So even if you don't even care about American Idol or want to listen to the show, please listen to that last question. It's going to be in the last probably five minutes of the show. That alone is worth its weight in gold. Let's go to the show. Thank you so much, Brooke, for coming on the show and sharing with us today.
1: I am glad we finally could make this it happen. <laughs> it's, it's been a long time coming.
0: I think it's been about two years' time coming, I think.
1: And that sounds about standard for me (laughs) to follow through with something that I started.
0: (laughs) No, not at all. Actually, I don't even think I had the idea for the podcast back then, but we met two years ago at Alt Summit during the little workshop I did called Things I'm Afraid to Tell You.
1: Absolutely. It was an incredible class.
0: And it was incredible to hear your story. So I'm so excited to share you with the listeners. So let's start with your background. Tell us how you got to where you are.
1: Uh... Mm, okay,
0: where does the story begin?
1: I don't know. I don't really know where the story <laughs> begins. I guess a lot of people, if they are even aware of who I am it it would start at American Idol. But
0: what got you to American Idol?
1: I grew up in Mesa, Arizona. I'm the oldest of four kids, and um I grew up in a house that was just pumping music through the speakers of you know, our record players and our Aerostar minivan. And it was just, that was our, our existence. We had a jukebox in the backyard and, and life really revolved around listening to like the sixties and seventies. Like, <laughs> that was my childhood. And we got a piano when I was seven and it was my great grandma Tootie's piano. And my dad, he kind of has this great musical ear where he can sit down and figure out a little bit of any instrument. But I remember him sitting down at the piano and playing like, somewhere in time and, and for Elise, and and, and I was so enamored. And then I sat down at the piano for the very first time and my fingers just knew where to go. This little tidbit is important because this has been the thing that ultimately just really dictated the path of my life. So I, I grew up playing the piano by ear, never successfully could take lessons or learn how to read music. And it was really just something I did for myself. When I was in high school i was I was actually a fairly introverted person. People find that hard to believe, <laughs> but yeah i was I was kind of a shy teenager until I hit about fifteen and my uncle forced me into an audition um, for our high school musical. He always believed I should be singing, but i I did not like the sound of my voice like I, I should say I hated the sound of my voice but I wanted to sound like the little mermaid and i <laughs> The joke is like, you know, I'm like either Brooke White or Barry White. Really, my (laughs) voice is super low and dude-ish kind of at times. But I went and I auditioned and hoped for a chorus part, and I ended up with the lead role. Again, this was a huge game changer. And um, the years following, I just started getting kind of pushed onto the stage. Contrary to where I really felt comfortable, it was always very uncomfortable for me, but there was a small part of me that started to kind of come alive in that place. But I always felt like it was at the hand of someone else. Like it wasn't something I wanted to do. I always had to be pushed and prodded, like, go try out, do this. You got to do it. You got to use your talent. And I was just really behind and fairly, like I said, lacking confidence and, and um, had some experiences in my teenage years that led to some pretty deeply rooted confidence issues and self-doubt simultaneously with a great deal of encouragement. So It was just enough to keep me moving and and discovering this talent. And I went to beauty school while I was in high school because I started cutting hair when I was nine years old. Really? I was really an artist at heart. I I just loved to draw and do things with my hands and create things. I wanted to be an animator for Disney. And then I started cutting hair. And I wanted to be a hairstylist when I grew up, despite the fact that I was, you know, had a love for, for music and such but never dreamed that I would actually pick a music as an occupation. Like a lot of people like, I knew I wanted to sing since I was three years old. That wasn't me at, at all. So I was cutting hair. I was going to beauty school. And then I met a music, a vocal coach who basically convinced me that I should, I should try to make a living at, at singing, which was just crazy to me. Like I just, I was literally just doing it. I think based off of like his recommendation and my parents also, I think felt really strongly that I should, I should sing just based on my own insecurities. It was just such a struggle for me, but whenever I would get in a musical setting, I just would come kind of into this place of, it was just so natural, but it was just getting there. It was always just all this fear around the actual doing it and and the belief in myself and my voice. And and meanwhile, I still had the same kind of dissatisfaction for what I had. I ended up graduating a semester early and I dropped out of beauty school. Yeah, I'm a beauty school dropout.
0: (laughs) You probably could sing about it.
1: I could and I have and other people do as well. So (laughs) spare everybody. I had started taking these voice lessons with this vocal coach. He convinced me that this was what I needed to do. He had a studio in LA, convinced my parents to let me move there. I graduated a semester early from high school and moved to LA when I was 17 for the first time alone.
0: Wow. What was that like being so
1: young? Well, it was amazing. You know, I, I look back and I think if I were, you know, my parents would I have let me go. And, you know, I kind of had that oldest child syndrome where I really wanted to just be good and please my parents. I mean, I, I mean that in a positive way, not like it's all negative, but I think I had proved myself trustworthy enough to go. But I think about it now and I'm just like, wow, that's such a scary thing to do. I was extraordinarily naive and very trusting. I would say innocent is a really good word to describe kind of who I was and where I was at that point. And it was amazing. And at the same time, it was a very complicated situation, which I won't totally get into. But it didn't last as long as I'd hoped. My parents wanted me to come home and I ended up coming home to Arizona and I spent the next two years, I quit music entirely, kind of went through a a kind of a sadness. I, the person I'd worked with, we kind of had a, a bit of a relationship, but, but it just kind of disintegrated and, and he was someone I really cared about. And so I was, I was heartbroken, like the dream, the friendship and the relationship I had with that person who really helped me discover my talent, which he was a very key person in helping me play the piano and sing at the same time. That was something I'd never really put together, which is a whole nother ball of wax, to be honest.
0: So why did you drop music altogether when you went back to Arizona? I came back to
1: Arizona and decided to kind of drop the music, especially after this one particular encounter that I had, where I went on a date with a good friend of mine. We were just really good friends. And he was related to some other friends of mine who were also singers and they were singers before I was. And when I kind of received some opportunities and they did not, it it really put some strain on our friendship. And that was a really hard experience for me and really affected me and my confidence. And so when I was out on a date with him, he basically bluntly told me to my face that I wasn't a very good singer. And the only reason that I had the opportunity was because I was cute. And that guy wanted to date me.
0: Oh, my God. And this is what he's saying on a date?
1: On a date, bless his heart. The poor guy, I, sh- I should really state that this guy and I have, we have we have uh, powwowed it out and he, is, he has apologized and we are good friends and we are all good. But this is a really traumatizing event that took place that really altered this little dialogue in my mind about my voice. He was also related to the person that was my good friend. And he's like, you know, she's a lot better singer than you are. And this was a very direct comment. And I, I, it was really mind blowing to actually hear. And it really, I've got to be honest, just shut me right up for a good two years. I just, you know, going there and things not working out in California with, and then coming home and hearing this comment, re- reaffirmed myself that, Hey, my voice isn't that good. I'm not that talented and I shouldn't be doing this.
0: Wow. So what did you do for those two years while you were not pursuing music?
1: I cut hair in my live in my kitchen, in my bathroom, and then I also worked at Nordstrom. I sold shoes. I thought Nordstrom was an amazing company. I absolutely am the worst salesperson on the entire planet. Um, I was be that person that would like tell you, like, you probably just shouldn't get those shoes. If, you know, I would be like, don't worry, you don't have to buy them. Like, that's the worst salesperson. <laughs> and then I was um, the person that answered phones and said, like, Jess Lively, 5-0. That was me. <laughs> And um, then I worked in customer service, which was much better because I loved people, but I didn't want to push them to buy things. So while I was working there, I also happened, fast forward almost two years from coming home from L.A., I met my husband, Dave, at a Thanksgiving event where you brought cans of food to get in. And it was literally like a big dance party. My parents told me that I should go. I was very, I went begrudgingly because I wasn't interested in meeting anybody or dating anyone. So I, I ended up going to the dance and meeting Dave. He's from Nova Scotia. It's far East Canada, almost as far East as you can go. We met at the dance and I was still kind of getting over the residual stuff from California, that relationship. I just, I was really in a dark place actually. And, and really, not thriving on any parts of my potential. And when we were dating, what's interesting to me now is I think we dated a whole eight months, just without him even knowing that I sang or had anything to do with music at all.
0: Really? Why did you hide that from him?
1: That, that message that you, you know, that tape that you play in your head over and over again was that I didn't have a good voice. I wasn't a very good singer and I wasn't very talented. I mean, that was what it came down to. So exposing that to someone else was something I didn't want to do, especially in a dating situation. What if, you know, he thought it wasn't very good? What if he felt uncomfortable or embarrassed if he heard me sing? Like, this was something that really plagued me. Here's where we get to the interesting part where really things changed, is I I was cutting hair every day, going to Nordstrom, working, doing the whole thing, dating Dave, who he's he's the actual opposite from me. He's, he's a CPA He's a numbers guy. He's super logical. And I was the far opposite. And this was actually a really interesting struggle for us in dating, but we still continued to date each other, interestingly enough. While I was, like, sitting at the computer, I had literally, uh, like, a voice come into my head that said, Google Musicians Institute.
0: Really? Where were you when this came to you?
1: I was in Gilbert, Arizona.
0: It just came to you? Never heard of it
1: before in my life. Didn't ever hear. If I did, it was subliminal. I never heard of it in my life.
0: How did you react when you heard that?
1: I just thought, well, this is interesting. My first instinct was to kick back and be like, no, I'm not going to even think about that. I'm not even going to think about that. Meanwhile, I should say my old demos had been kind of drifting around and I was getting some calls on them like, hey, I heard your demo you know, are you interested in doing some recording or writing? And I just kept turning it down. So it was like, I kept feeling these feelings of the music trying to kind of crawl back into my life, but I was resisting it super hard because emotionally, I just felt like I was too fragile to even handle it again. I Googled musicians Institute and boom, there it was on the first page. It said request a course catalog. I clicked on it. I put my address in a month later, my parents received, I was living at my grandma's house at the time. My parents received the course catalog and were thrilled. They said to me, hey, we noticed that you got this course catalog and they were very encouraging. We think you should go check out the school. Meanwhile, guess where it is? Hollywood. It's in Hollywood. Like no way I'm going back to California. I mean, I loved it there, but I just felt like I couldn't, I couldn't go through that again. And my mom was very encouraging and she just said, you know, we should go. And so we organized this trip and I remember telling Dave, my boyfriend at the time, I'm going to California to look at a music school. (laughs) He's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah. So I kind of used to sing. And even to this day, it's, it's, it's weird for me to identify myself as I sing, I make music, which is the most truthful thing I could say, but owning it has been the hardest thing for me to do. Telling him that was like, I kind of liked to sing. I didn't even know how I said it, but I ended up Going to Hollywood to check out the school and went the first day and hated it. And, and I remember telling him, like, don't worry, I'm only gonna go for like a summer session and then meet if I decide and then I'll come home. And I went to the school and I had this incredible experience where I was sitting in on a class. It's called Stagecraft, where the whole band is sitting on stage. Well, it's just a bunch of random players, and they improv the entire class musically. You go on stage and everybody together makes a song on the spot. Without communicating, it's just completely intuitive. And I sat in on this class, and I was just blown away. And the teacher turned around; his name was Masta. And he turned around. And he said, "Hey, young lady, why don't you get on that stage and sing something?" And I remember like freezing, thinking, "No way, not a chance." And he basically pushed me on the stage. And what happened was, for about. 14, 15 minutes, I just sang back and forth with him. These words were just flying out of my mouth and this chorus. And I was like shaking because it was such a powerful moment where my voice was free. I I suddenly felt so like I knew this is what I was supposed to do. And it was something I'd resisted so hard. And there was so much fear in letting it out. And so I I remember finishing the song and he said, Well, when are you going to start? You know, it was it was very clear. My mom was in the back of the room and she was crying because she just knew the intense emotional battle I'd been through with the self-belief. And so she was so excited and, and it was very clear I had to come. I had to go to the school. I had a friend donate money to me because I didn't have it to cover the the tuition. I ended up moving to LA July fourth, two thousand and three. I started music school the very next week. I went to music school for three months, and that is where I wrote my very first songs. That led me to this class where you write songs and then you, you, you sing them in front of a judge panel of publishers. I got the highest marks and that was a really big moment for me. And actually, my, my then boyfriend, Dave, who is now my husband, came out and I remember sitting him down in a practice room with me and playing for him one of my very first songs I wrote called The Way Things Used to Be. And when I finished, he said, well, I guess you're not going to come back to Arizona, are you?
0: Is that the first time he had heard you sing?
1: Yeah, it was like the, well, it might've been like the second time, maybe before it was like singing along to the radio or something. But this was me sitting at the piano and playing. And it was kind of like, he didn't even know me at that point. It was like, what? (laughs) It was really hard because when I left, we were kind of in the state of like, kind of playing hard to get. He kept telling me we we should date other people. But then I left and it was like, suddenly we started talking about marriage. and, And so we did the long distance dating thing for those eight months. And he came out and heard me play. And yeah, that's when he knew I wasn't coming back to Arizona. And And I remember standing out on Marina Del Rey on the beach and looking out at the water and just feeling like this is where I'm meant to be. This is my place. This is the time. Music school became, it was nothing about finding someone to produce me or manage me. It was all about myself. It was all about coming to a place of self-discovery you know, I didn't want to be told I was good. I was bad. I just wanted to go and figure it out. And that's what I did. And And it was very encouraging to have some of these things happen, writing the songs. And I, I just became in love with sitting at the piano and playing and writing. That didn't happen until I was, yeah, over 20 years old. I mean, when you think about it, that's not like super young. I mean,
0: yeah, you hadn't embraced your own gift yet. Everyone else was forcing it upon you in one way or they were taking it away from you. Exactly.
1: It was extraordinarily uncomfortable for me to be kind of thrust into this position of sing, share your talent, let it out, be heard. And I think I always kind of took this position of I'm not very good. I always had these disclaimers, but you know, don't expect much because I'm not very good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and what do you think that was? Was it comparing you to someone like humongous that, you know, like not as good as
1: no, no, it was never someone humongous. It was always someone that I knew. And I always had a pretty much a very, a very good idea of who the, the person was. And at the time it was probably one of my, my best friends, the one that the guy that I was on the date with, had compared me to, and, you know, we had gone through some interesting stuff together. And, and I, I think I can all talk about this now because she and I actually, went through a lot together and cleared things up. Girls have very interesting experiences together as friends when it comes to expressing our talents. And when they're similar, that competitive vibe, it's a real thing. I never thought I was competitive, but through the years, I found that I might not be classically competitive, but but I am. I, I am. <laughs> I might do it in a way that's more subtle, but ultimately, I think for me, it was just my way of vying for self-acceptance and feeling like I was good enough. And because I think when other people had, had voiced their feelings in such a, a verbally strong way, like in such a blunt way, it was, it just really validated my own insecurity. So I think that's where it came from, Jess. Is-
0: yeah. If you're not going to be the best, then you're not going to try it at all.
1: Right. And and it was so, it was just like, you know, if I can, exactly. I think you just hit the nail on the head. I think there's a billion other things that go into it, quite honestly, but we ain't got time for that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, it seems like just a classic kind of uh, pursuit of perfection.
1: Yeah, perfectionism. And I think that's definitely a very strong thread that can weave throughout my tapestry.
0: I actually pulled a a quote you shared about Christmas cards that actually (laughs) had said, you know, still aiming for perfectly done, which means really never done. So you kind of like waffled on either end of that spectrum, very extreme, either I'm not going to do music for two years or I'm all in. I'm still fascinated on how does this lead you to American Idol?
1: So then here we are in L.A. I finished music school and I have landed in the attic of a producer's home. And he is trying to convince me to stay in L.A. and do a career. I was very weary of this situation as I don't know. I, I just, this whole experience was so beautiful for myself to come to California to music school and to turn it into a career was not something I was just very, very sure I wanted to do, but he was incredibly persistent and really believed in my voice. And so he offered to start recording me on spec and helping me develop a band. And And he did, he did a, a great deal to help me and really believed in me. Meanwhile, I was still dating my husband. He ended up proposing to me a year later on Thanksgiving and moving to LA. And we got married April, of 2004, which means, yes, we have been married 10 stinking years. That's time. <laughs> not stinking, but like, that's a long time. And he moved up to LA so I could continually pursue this music path. Wow. Didn't think that's what I wanted, you know, but, but here we are. I'm working with this guy who is kind of taken me under his wing um, as a manager and as a producer. We worked together for quite a long time. I start writing rapidly songs. Um, I created my first record, Songs from the Attic. I'll be honest with you, it's really hard for me to go back and listen to because I'm very uncomfortable with my voice again at that stage. And it's very timid and and I'm still going through a lot of issues of confidence. As a matter of fact, here's one other experience that I feel like is worth sharing. I am invited to come perform. I'm at a party where I'm, I've been invited to sing. It's for a bunch of singer songwriters. It's kind of like the hip place to be. I'm feeling quite nervous about it, but I do my performance afterwards. I'm sitting and I'm watching another girl perform who I definitely would have classified as a comparable artist to me. She had a raspy voice, but she had endless range and a lot of comfort and swagger on stage. And I, I remember just really feeling like, wow, she's so amazing. I wish I could be that amazing. And as I'm having these thoughts, the guy who runs the show sits down, plops next to me. He's drunk. He's had few too many times. <laughs> And he basically says to me, she is better than you. She's better than you. <laughs> yeah, this is like a theme sort of at this point. Dude, it's like I attracted it. It's like I'm a magnet for tell me all of my worst. And you're not even asking for it. Dude, I'm not asking for it. And when you're not asking for it, you really start to wonder, maybe I don't belong doing this. Like maybe I legitimately stink at this job. So I remember him saying it to me and literally just feeling like I needed, it was outdoors. Like I was going to run behind a tree and break down, (laughs) needed to just like have camouflage on and go cry a big puddle of tears. And it, it hurt. It just stung again. After all those years of really trying to work on myself, it just came right full back.
0: Do you think there was a lesson there that you were meant to learn to not listen to whether other people said your music was amazing or whether it sucked? Because you're just getting pushed by different voices telling you the opposite ends of the spectrum.
1: I'm getting both voices. And and I didn't know which one to believe. And and this is a very big thing in an, an artist's life, in a creative person's life. I think most of us are rather tormented. We have demons, we have we have darkness, we have light. It's a it's a tug of war. It's a constant what do I believe? We're so at the whim of the approval of others. That's the nature of a performer. I hate to say it. We don't just sit alone and sing in a bedroom or keep our, our you know, our, sitting at our desk. We have that inner longing to share. And when it's not received well, then we internalize it as we're, we're not valuable. We're, we're, what we do isn't good enough.
0: It's something that transcends music, too. It Really, if you think about anyone that puts anything out online can also connect to that same thing, whether people are telling you you're amazing and what you do online is great or whether it's terrible. But I wonder, and obviously, when you've got to pay the bills, you have to hope people like your stuff to pay the bills.
1: Absolutely. It's a business. It gets way crazy. Yeah, that, that adds an element of complete insanity.
0: But I wonder if what we're all meant to learn with either online or music or an artist's life. Is not to listen to anyone else's voice, but to listen to the voice inside of us.
1: I, I think that what you're saying is is ultimately where I'm I'm still at, at on a pursuit of. And I think American Idol was the most compounded of all these situations, which which is where we're getting to, that really was like God's way of saying, if this doesn't cure you of all this crap, then I don't know what will. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like life escalated it, so you had to finally kind of break through it. I did. Well, let tell us, tell us the story of American Idol.
1: Well, so here I am four years later working in LA, trying to get a record deal. Doesn't happen, but I've put out a record on my own and it's just getting to the point where me and my husband are thinking we should have a baby. I'm almost 25. Oh my gosh, I'm getting so old. That's just me being sarcastic. But at the time, you know, those feelings are real and, and in the business, like thrives on youth and you just think the older you get, the less validity and relevance that you have. And so- I remember my manager saying, well, you could always do American Idol. And I remember watching that show and just thinking, that just looks like my very worst nightmare. (laughs) Exposing myself and my flaws and this, you know, I'm just not a good enough singer. I'm not a singer-singer. You know, I'm a singer-songwriter. I play an instrument. I write my own songs. I don't want to say I thought I was too good. I didn't think I was good enough, but I thought I was more serious than that. I didn't think I was a good enough singer, but I thought, you know, my musical path was not about singing cover songs. So really it came down to, I was deathly afraid to it. I'm in Arizona for a wedding and I get this feeling like I should go try out for Idol. And I found out that, that the audition that had come through LA come and gone, over. There was one last audition the very next day in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So I'm thinking, I'm in Arizona, the last auditions in Philadelphia, the next time I could try out is next year if I don't do this tomorrow. So I called my husband, I prayed my guts out. I was like, what should we do? And we had very, very little money in savings. And he just said, you know what? I think that if it was in our backyard, you would go audition. And I just think you should do it. And I had the support of him and I had the support of my manager and my parents. And we emptied out my savings account and I went to Philadelphia. I should at first say that I actually decided not to go. But then that night I woke up in my sleep, like sick to my stomach. And that was when it was like full on, everyone was like, you should do it. I emptied out my savings, got on a red eye, went to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Also amazing stories. But the long story long is I waited my very first audition. Little do people know is it's like four auditions to get to Hollywood. But my very first audition, I waited 21 hours. I waited 21 hours to audition. I was one of the very last people to get a yes. There was over 20,000 people there that day. I got a ticket to Hollywood and that whole week was a really incredible week for me on a spiritual level. I was completely alone. I had no family there. That experience was, was the most clear. It was like, and I have to include this because this is just a big part of my life, but it was clear to me that I felt God saying, this is where you need to be. You are in the right place. You just trust me. It's going to be harder than hell for you, but you are just going to get through this. And this is really important.
0: So you finally found the confidence and it wasn't outside of you. It was inside of you.
1: I'm going to say this. I don't think I did find the confidence because a lot of my story on Idol was even built around this fact that I, I always like to be very upfront about, again, I always had these disclaimers like, you know, I'm kind of nervous. I don't really know what I'm doing. It was always like the way I let myself off the hook if I made a mistake. And if I was, if people thought I wasn't perfect, I wanted them to know first that I knew that I wasn't either. Wow.
0: What a self-reflective realization.
1: Yeah. This is something that I've really come to realize.
0: I think it's a protection, right? So if I can say I'm bad before someone else can, then they can't hurt me when they go throw these random comments at me when I'm not expecting it.
1: Yes, it is. It's definitely something that I felt like I had to do. And In my vulnerability is where I find my strength. In my honesty is where I find my self-acceptance. In my ability to just say, this is who I am. I'm not perfect, but this is what I have to offer. Even if I forget a note or my voice cracks or I forget the next chord, this is what I have to give you. And what I have to give you is my very honest best effort. And for me, and, exp- and expressing those feelings as, you know, a lot of people like this whole, like, very polished, like, never let them know that you're nervous. Never let them cry. Never let them see that you made a mistake. You just be a pro and you roll past it. That has never been my MO because for me, that is so, uh, that is like a line for me. It's like, that just feels like, how can I connect with anybody honestly when I can't be honest about my flaws? And that's why for American Idol, I had experiences that really thrust a lot of those flawed moments out into the open. It was harder than, you know, even though it was way, I I felt like I, I had to be that way. It was, it was very challenging again, so many tears. So, you know, and if you want to talk about criticism, if you want to talk about people ripping you to shreds to the extent where they say stupid stuff, like you should die. I mean, crazy stuff. This was on a worldwide scale. Now that I was being exposed and being both adored and criticized. You know, I'd walk outside of my, my hotel door and I, my face would be on the front of USA Today. This was a very surreal experience to be very much forced to face the music.
0: No pun intended. What's it like to be on that scale? I,
1: I I don't even know what the words are. You're in a bubble, so you don't really realize how big it is. You're very protected. You know, they didn't even turn on the radio in the morning because they were worried about us. They didn't want us to hear about... At the time, it was a 40 million plus viewership. It was enormous. It was kind of at its peak. They were made sure to protect us. They said, don't Google your own name. That's one of my biggest pieces of advice to people that do this business. Like, don't go looking for what people have to say about you. Don't do it. Like, it starts to affect you. I just tried to keep myself focused on the music. I just practiced. It was all about the craft. I wanted to be prepared. I wanted to work hard. And this is something also that I've learned is that my best ammunition against my, my own self-doubt and other people's criticism was preparedness was being good at the, was learning to be as good as I could at the craft and I spent hours upon hours and what was really unique about my season it was the first season they let us play an instrument and I was the only female to play an instrument which really was my one thing that I could count on when everybody, I'd sit in rehearsals and hear everybody practice and think, how in the world did I get here? I don't belong here. The singers were so magnificent and their voices and the the things that they could do and the notes that they could hold out were just astounding. And for me, I just had to sit there and tell stories at the piano and the guitar. And, And that's what I did. And I just had to count on that, but it was the preparation that really, for me, was the only thing I you know that really I knew gave me a little added bit of, of confidence
0: because it was the only thing inside of your control.
1: It was the only thing, and one thing that happens to you on Idol is that you have almost zero control, and let me just say you have almost zero control, and that is not a knock to the show it's just the nature of the beast. it is what it is it's a fast moving machine. If you get the song that you liked, you're very lucky, but sometimes it doesn't get approved by the publisher. You know, there's so many things that go wrong. Like you want a certain arrangement. There's not time for the band to work it out. So it sounds just like the record, which then kind of sounds karaoke, which isn't great for your voice. And what you practice at home isn't what the band plays. And suddenly you feel like you're falling apart. I had this one really amazing moment with the the musical director, Ricky Miner, who is a very well-respected man. I respect him so much. He, he runs the Grammys, the Oscars, anytime there's a band playing on stage. Ricky Miner is the head. And he was the musical director of Idol. And I had this experience with him. It was 70s week. I had chosen You're So Vain by Carly Simon. I knew that song. I knew it before Idol. And I felt like this was my moment to pull out my guitar and play on stage. And we were in rehearsal And I played it and I was stumbling through and super nervous. And this band is not like the garage band, you guys. This is like, they're a machine. You've never heard a band play. It's like listening to a record for sure. I was not up to their level at all. And Ricky came to me in the sweetest way. He just said very bluntly to me, Brooke, you're not ready to play that guitar on this show. You're just not. And again, it was just, geez, you know, like, what am I going to do? I'm just going to stand up here and sing and go home. <laughs> I can't do that. And I remember hearing him and respecting what he had to say, because like, this is the best musical MD out there. I remember rolling up in a curtain on stage and just sobbing in that curtain, like a little roll up. I was like a little fruit roll up in that curtain, just sobbing. And Bird, who was our music, our our, our voice teacher, just said, you know, Brooke, She walked me outside in the rain and she just said, just cry, just get it all out. And it was just all this, all these pain of insecurity just was just never wanted to leave me. And, and so, you know, I remember going home and I sat in the bathtub with no water in it, just like with my guitar and I practiced all night long. So I wouldn't bother my roommate and um, I practiced all night long, all night long. And I woke up the next day, with hardly any sleep. I prayed about it. And I really felt like, you know, I got to play this guitar. i got to play it. And I got on stage with Ricky and I I went to him and I said, Ricky, I want you to know how much I, I respect you and the things that you said, but I went home and I practiced and I practiced all night and I prayed about this. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to play the guitar. And he looked at me like, okay, you know, it was just kind of like, I hope that this goes well for you. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm going to say that that was a really, that was my night. That was one of those nights that was a defining moment for me. I remember Simon Cowell saying to me, that was one of the smartest things you could have done was to play the guitar. And it was one of those moments that just finally felt like I had a win. I listened to myself. I practiced, I pushed beyond the fact that I wasn't good enough and I got better.
0: Right? Isn't that amazing? Because a lot of people, especially when they struggle with perfectionism, can say, this has to be naturally good enough. And if it's not, I'm not going to try. Versus preparing like you did to improve yourself. Because that's always within our control. Is to The actions we take are always the only thing we have in our control. And if we're relying too much on the raw talent that we didn't actually try for, we're never going to develop as far as our potential could allow.
1: Wow. I mean, you just <laughs> you just really wrapped it up in a beautiful bow. I I could have never come up with that synopsis. But yes, I think you said it perfectly. And I wonder about how many people that could be extraordinary, that could have moments of glory and triumph and share something with somebody that's part of themselves is so important and don't because the feeling of defeat and self-doubt is so powerful that it just knocks you right off that horse. And I know how hard it is to get back on. And I'm just grateful that I have had Like I said, I think at this point, you know, beforehand, I had all these people around me encouraging me. At this point, I feel like I had American Idol. The person I relied on most was God to give me these continually moments of push of you can get past this. You can just keep working harder at this. And I did. And then the following week I got, let it be. And I played on the piano and, you know, it just gave me that confidence to take that next step. And then I ended up on the piano and I sang, Let It Be. And that was, I go back and I listen and I actually cringe to listen to the performance, but I was so emotional that somewhere we connected. I connected with America and they connected with me. And that was a very special, special moment. I had just skipped like three rungs as far as I'm concerned in, in my, my personal development because it was such a triumphant moment where I had put everything of my doubts and my insecurities into that song. And it came out the way it should. And this is where I've discovered that, unfortunately, this torture that a lot of us are subjected to, this sensitivity, this constant feeling and feeling and feeling is necessary so that we can connect with other people. So we know what it feels like to really be human beings. Otherwise, we're separate from people. And that's not where I can thrive is like on a pedestal. I'm not better Or worse than anyone else, I'm doing my struggle just like you are, and I'm happy to relate to you on that level. I love
0: that, and it really goes to what you shared with me beforehand—that you realized your purpose is to help people feel less alone, no matter what form that's taking in your career or outside of your career.
1: Yes, it is, and it's amazing because over and over again, and and as I'm talking to you, it's wow, it's like so. I'm an emotional person; I cried a lot through American Idol because it was so many moments of learning. The whole experience that I've had, and even after that, after those triumphant moments, I fell pretty hard. I had a moment on stage. It started to decline. I got some bad criticism, and here I go again. I start doubting. Simon said I was like a hamburger with no meat when I did a Mariah Carey song, which part of me was like, you know what? Who can sing a Mariah Carey song and and, and succeed? Yeah, dude, I was a vegetarian-style Mariah Carey. What <laughs> can I say? And so I was feeling a little low, and the last, next week was Andrew Lloyd Webber. He was so the most incredible mentor we'd ever had, and I could have never expected that. I didn't know a lot about him other than Phantom of the Opera and his, his obvious body of work, but he took me by the hand and he looked me in the eye and he said, you need to figure out this story, and you need to give Simon back that hamburger with the meat and all the trimmings. And I remember singing You Must Love Me, which that song is couldn't have been a more suited song for me uh, from Avita, And he just told me the story. And I remember looking into his eyes and singing it to him and and him just saying to me, like, this is your moment. Like, go out there and tell this story. You must, you must love me. And I could understand that feeling of vulnerability and just wanting to feel like other people thought I was worthy and good enough. And so I remember going out on that stage and, and you know what happened is I actually got one line in, and I completely forgot the lyrics. I'm telling you, completely forgot. The entire orchestra's on stage. I basically asked them if we could start over on live television. Really? You can go watch it. It was, yeah,
0: (laughs) it's there. Has that ever happened? Or are you the first person that happened to?
1: It's the first time it's ever happened. As far as I know, it's the only time it's ever happened. So I stopped and I started over and I shook like a leaf up there the rest of the way through it. I guess what I should say is before I went on stage, <laughs> I was in the bathroom and this woman saw me and said, did you see the article in LA Times from Angeloid Lloyd Webber that he's what he said about you today? This is right before I'm about to go on stage. And I said, no, she said, well, he said that he thought that you were great and had high hopes for you tonight and really just wondered, hoped that you were going to be able to pull it off. So, you know, good luck. That just spooked me. And there I was standing on stage and he was sitting right in front of me and I just wanted to have that special moment. And I stopped and I started over. And then there was this big debate afterwards where Simon said, I thought it was the right choice. Paula said you shouldn't. Again, it's this whole thing of don't let them see that you made a mistake, power through it. Don't bring attention to it. And at the end of the day, I didn't even know. It just happened. I asked to start over and we did. And I got through it. And I actually didn't get eliminated that night. It's to this day, Jess, one of the things that people remember the most. They always come up to me and say, I love that moment when you stopped and restarted. That was my favorite moment of you of the entire show. And I'm just like, that was it? Like, after everything?
0: <laughs> Yeah, not this song or that song or how well I did, but it was the fact that I had to restart it. Why was it their favorite?
1: Uh, again, I think the only thing that I could understand is that for somebody, it was I made a mistake on a large platform and it was a moment of humanity that I think made people feel more comfortable about themselves. Again, less alone, less alone. And as much as I resist and kick and hate, hate it all and cry, God has given me both experiences, the painful failings and the, the flaws, you know, like my voice is flawed. My performances are often jittery and, and flawed. And sometimes they're very smooth and amazing. And he gives me both so that I, again, stay humble and can relate and connect and let people feel less alone. Again, this is what it keeps just driving home to me that hang on for the ride. But, you know, this is part of the experience. And yet, going back to the perfectionist thing, I still have that strong thread of perfectionism. So it's very, it's still a very painful process to continually go through these cycles. It's a
0: lifelong learning. So tell us about how American Idol wrapped up.
1: So, wow, if you can believe it, I got all the way to fifth place. Sometimes people come up to me and they'll say, I'm so sorry that you got eliminated or, you know, I'm sorry you didn't win. And I just think, are you kidding me? Like if people knew 107,000 people auditioned in my year and out of 107,000 people, I got down to the top five. With Just me, my little self with my flawed issues in my voice and my, I got to fifth place. And I just want to tell people like, you don't even know how big that is for me. It was, it was an enormous success. I wanted more. If you go watch my elimination video, I just cried because I, I actually got to where I just wanted to keep going. But I landed in fifth place. I went on the national tour, which was uh, 54 Tour dates across the nation, sold out arena tour, coming up to the stage on a grand piano. A year later in Philadelphia, in the same arena that I auditioned in, I'm coming up to the floor on a grand piano and I'm singing Let It Be. And it's almost year to the date. I get done with that song, I walk to the end of the stage and I look up to the seat that I sat for 21 hours, and I told that person, whoever is sitting in this row in seat two twenty-something, stand up, and they did. I said, I stood there and I waited for 21 hours a year ago. And now here I am standing on the front of the stage. That's incredible. It was just such a moment of reflection of gratitude. Like, look where you came. Look how far, like what a difference a year makes to sit up there and then be down here and, and be on a stage where people, they're listening and, and they're and they're there just to see, well, there's, they're there to see one of you. <laughs> one of the But <laughs> and that was actually a really challenging experience to tour and, and was Again, a test of vulnerability. But I ended up off the show then trying to start my own career, which Life After Idol is almost like a whole other podcast, I've got to tell you.
0: Unfortunately, we don't have enough time to do that. So you could summarize what do you think life has been teaching you since American Idol?
1: I think kind of what we said earlier. I think what life has taught me since Idol is that, one, you can't place your worth in you know, whether people tell you you're not great or that someone's better than you or that you're the best and, the, and that you're the greatest because I've been told both things on numerous occasions.
0: And what's fascinating about you is that they've said that in small settings like a date and they've said that on a
1: national scale in a newspaper. Right, right. I mean, I've I've gotten both. I've gotten like extraordinary praise and I've also been criticized in a in a very personal way. And both have been extremely devastating and very triumphant. And at the end of the day, I think what I try to learn and what I've tried to take from it, for one, it keeps you level. It keeps you humble. And two, it helps me find a place of worth that is so outside of any of it, which is a very difficult thing to do if you're going to do it. If you're going to be a performer, if you are going to be an artist, finding a sense of worth outside of what other people say. And for me, this has been a, a huge thing. And I'm still, I'm still working on it. Like I, I've, I've, I just got another attack this month of just extraordinarily anxiety and depression over my lack of self-acceptance. And just the last couple of days, I've just, you know, when I went to Nashville, I had this incredible experience. And again, it was just this, there's this place between striving for your best and accepting yourself and finding your worth there and that place of you're, you're enough. It doesn't mean we can't really strive for greatness and strive for our best, but also accept that we're enough. We have it and it's all there. The potential and all those experiences are there. And ultimately, that the, all these experiences were necessary and that they are necessary to help me and my mission on earth to help other people feel less alone. And that's why it all works for me in the end. And I'll take it.
0: That is beautiful. So what would you tell someone who's just starting out on this journey?
1: I'd say, get ready. Hold on. And part of me wants to say, don't let any of it get you too high or too low. But sometimes you need to let it let you get a little high and a little low so that you can experience it, that you can know what it feels like and that that opposition will help you find your way I think at the end of the day, find concrete things, things that you can count on that are your anchors that at the end of the day, help you keep your worth intact. When you have these bumps in the road, when you feel like you're not good enough and you struggle and you make mistakes and someone even comes to you and tells you to your face that you're not good enough. I mean, unless it happens like 30 times in a row, that may be questioned, but I would say, get back on the horse. This is not the end. You'll get great and then you'll suck again. And then you'll get great again. And then you might have another mistake. It's like the sky. It's blue and then it's cloudy and then it's sunny again. You know, you can just expect it. It's cyclical. It's beautiful. And you know, what you can do for yourself alone is an incredible experience of growth. But what you're going to do for others in your own experience is going to be bigger than you can imagine.
0: That is beautiful, Brooke. That is one of the best answers to that question we have ever had. Thank you so much, Brooke, for sharing your story and your vulnerability with us today.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you.
0: And there you have it. Thank you, Brooke, so much for sharing so openly and wholeheartedly with us. And like I said before, for nailing that last question about what you would tell someone just starting out on this journey. If you would like to send a message to Brooke to let her know how much she love the show, please hop over to Twitter. Her handle is Brooke White. That's Brooke with an E, White. Thank you guys so much. And if you're new to The Lively Show, you can check out past episodes. They're as juicy and awesome and relatable and inspirational as this one over at thelivelyshow.com. Thank you guys so much. And I hope something wonderful happens to you today.